Good morning. If you don't have a Bible, just want you to know that any Sunday that you come in our hallway, there's Bibles out on our welcome table or maybe out at the table on the front. I can't remember if it's outside or right there, but feel free to grab one and keep it or just use one for the morning. If you got here uh, without a Bible, um, some of you might've gotten here without a Bible because you've left one here in previous weeks and that might be out on our lost and found table as well. So get that one first before you get a new one. Um, But I'm Kenny, one of our elders here, Grace Fullerton. If you're visiting this morning, I see a few faces I don't recognize. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I hope you're encouraged this morning as we go to God's word. Uh, Turn to 2 Peter. We've been in a series in this little letter near the end of your Bible that the Apostle Peter, the same Peter that lived and, and walked the earth with Jesus and saw Jesus teach and perform miracles and saw him die, saw him risen. Um, this is a letter that he wrote. Um, but I want us to think as we're turning to Second Peter chapter 3 about some of the things that we've been singing this morning. Uh, particularly about the return of Jesus. And um, we've been singing about things that we don't often sing about, maybe as often as other things that we sing about in the church, but things about uh, future events that we literally believe are gonna happen. Like Jesus is gonna visibly uh, and bodily return and we will see him and and the events surrounding that return are going to be um, cataclysmic, uh, we sang things like, and it is well with my soul, the trump will resound, the Lord will descend. And then there's this line, even so, it is well with my soul. I remember uh, years ago, it struck me as weird as, why do we say even so? Because as a Christian, I think that's a great moment that Jesus comes back. Why do we say all these things are, Jesus is going to come down and even so? But I realized, well, it's because of something that Laura was praying that if it wasn't for being forgiven of my sin, that would be a terrifying moment. And we believe that there will come a day when Jesus will return and it will involve judgment, judging the nations. Everyone will stand before him. It'll involve rewarding his saints like we just sang in the song, the blood-bought saints then standing tall will at the feet of Jesus fall and he will be our all in all. And these things that we are singing are the very things that Peter is saying in his day and in our day will be mocked. Or as the way Scott put it last week, people will say, can you believe what these people believe? You really believe these things are going to happen? And we say, yes, we do. It struck me that the scoffers question, where is the promise of his coming? And, And the way they would ask that is not so much a sincere question, but as a jab, right? Where is this promised coming, right? Still don't see it. The reason that question can be unsettling for me when it's raised is, maybe for you too, is that I ask that question at times in my own mind, not with a tone of mocking, but a tone of concern. I mean, how much more 2016 do we feel, where is the promise of his coming? Jesus said he was going to come back soon. He used those words. The book of Revelation, which is the last book in your Bible, um, was a, is a collection of visions that the Apostle John was given by God. In many of those visions, Jesus himself speaks to John and tells him about things that are still yet to come when God brings to completion all of his plans for redemption uh, and showing his glory in the world. And in that letter, or that, that book, Revelation, four times Jesus says to John, I'm coming soon. Chapter 3, verse 11, John, I'm coming soon. Chapter 22, verse 7, John, behold, I am coming soon. 
22 verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing recompense with me. In other words, he says to repay each one for what he's done. And in the last two verses in your Bible, Jesus says again, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. To which the church responds in the last verse of the Bible, amen. Come Lord Jesus. So I was reminded of how many times Jesus says soon, I thought of Inigo Montoya and one of his famous lines, you keep using that word, Jesus. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> 2,000 years doesn't feel soon, does it? There's, there's a sense when people say, really? You really think this is gonna happen? Where is it? It's been 2,000 years since he said soon. Sometimes we might feel like not soon enough. But I want to pause. Last week I preached from this passage at La Mirada. And this week, as I've been thinking about this, it struck me that maybe not all of us here have this strong sense of, oh, the Lord's uh, return couldn't come soon enough. Come, Lord Jesus. Maybe for some of us, actually, we feel more like, no, wait, Lord Jesus. No rush. I thought about uh, an argument I got into, a friendly argument with a good friend of mine named Andre Murillo. Some of you might know who he is. Let me turn this on. Some of you maybe know about this famous artist. So that's Andre. We're showing off our guns at Hume Lake. He really has them. I have to push mine out. But he plays professional basketball in Germany, but he's a member of Grace, has been for years. And we were at Hume Lake right there out in that grass one day, a few, three summers back, the last day of camp. Friday, and it was after dinner, and we're out on the point where the sailboats are, and the sun's starting to go down. It was just this like glorious moment. We were sitting in those Adirondack chairs that, if you've been to Hume Lake, you know, are out. And Andre kind of swept up in just the beauty we were looking at. He he says, "Wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus just came back right now?" And I said, "Yeah." And then half in jest, but I said, Andre. All week long, I've been waiting. I haven't had a shake all week at Hume. I've been good. I've been running in the mornings and I was saving Friday night. I was gonna take Betsy and go get a shake at the end of the night. I said, it would be even more awesome <laughs> if I had just finished my Kona coffee, chocolate, peanut butter cup shake and then Jesus came back and he turned, Andre turns to me and says, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> we got in this big argument. I'm like, no, 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 hear what I'm saying. I mean, this is sweet, but wouldn't it be just a little bit sweeter if I had just had this shake and then it happened? And he said, no. He was like fired up. He says, no, it wouldn't. You mean to tell me, he said, that if Jesus came back and you hadn't had your shake, you would be thinking, oh, I really wish I could have gotten that shake. <laughs> and when he put it that way, I finally had to concede, okay, you're right. No, it wouldn't. So Andre, if you're listening to this, again, you are right on this one. Um, but, but honestly, as absurd as that is, we can have our bucket list of things, our Hume shakes, that we're perfectly fine with Jesus delaying because I, I want this. I want to get my driver's license. I want to finish college. I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to see my children grow, grow up. And I have a bucket list. There's places I want to go travel. And, and we live in a very comfortable place such that I think it can be easy to not have a real strong sense of come Lord Jesus, that our brothers and sisters in other places in the world feel deeply. So I just wanted to take that little aside before we dive in. And I want us to think about the sense in which I think even with our bucket lists, we, we still have a sense of come Lord Jesus. Um, but to, to, to call us to, to consider that, are there reasons that we would not mind Jesus delaying that God would say, that's not a good reason to want Jesus to delay. Our passage is gonna talk about a reason, that, a good reason for us to be thankful for the delay of Jesus, but it's not to check off our bucket lists. 
Um, so come Lord Jesus is, is, is a prayer that Christians should have in the groaning uh, of this world. I thought about Dave Talley, who has been, was an elder here at Grace for um, 15, 16 years. And I can't tell you how many elder meetings I, I have sat in with Dave Talley over the years where something that we were talking about wouldn't lead him to sigh quietly under his breath and say, come Lord Jesus. Sometimes it would be, we would just be talking about current events and things that had just happened in the news that week and about dealing with this or praying with it as a congregation and, and violence or the persecuted church. And he would go, oh, come Lord Jesus. Sometimes it was talking about us, the people of grace and the things that we know people are struggling with and we're praying for their, their trials and their suffering. And he would say, oh, come Lord Sometimes it would come out as we were being honest with each other and confessing sin and, and asking to pray and, uh, for our own struggles um, and living in ways that, that we were uh, ashamed of and wanting to grow in. And he would say, oh, come Lord Jesus. And I want to ask you, what are the things that make you long for Jesus' return? What pulls... Some of you are thinking Tuesday. <laughs> no, what are the things that, that pull that, that prayer from your lips? Come, Lord Jesus. Because our text here, these three verses, Peter has a word for you of comfort. Um, in verses one through seven, the passage that Scott preached last week, he spoke to Christians, but he, he really said, here's my word for scoffers who mock with the question, where's the promise of his coming? Here's what I have to say to that. But in these verses, Peter turns to his beloved, his church, and says, here's a word of encouragement and comfort for you who are struggling with that question, where's the promise of his coming? And he really answers it by pointing us to the character of God. So here's the question in the outline I want to give. When you, when you are troubled that Christ hasn't come back yet, what does Peter want you to remember about God's character? Three things. He's eternal, he's patient, and he's just. In these three verses, that's what he hits. God is eternal, he is patient, that means he's slow to anger, and he's just, he is righteous, and he will by no means allow wickedness to go unpunished. And those three things, Peter thinks, will comfort us and encourage us as we wait. So let me read our three verses and pray, and we'll work our way through this passage. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray. Uh, God, help us here. Uh, give us uh, ears like in Jesus' parable that's like good, that are like good soil where your word lands and we hear it and we think about it and it bears fruit of the kind that you, you want to come from, from thinking about these things and, and remembering these truths and, and seeing these aspects of your character this morning. Help us to not miss uh, what you have for us in these verses in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first of all, God is eternal. As we're worried and, 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 and 
anxious that Jesus hasn't come back yet and we're troubled and we groan and want him to come back. First of all, he says, God is eternal. Why do we need to remember that? Well, two things. It tells us that God's perspective of time is different than ours. That's what Peter points out. But even more than that, Peter implies that God's reckoning of time and his perspective on time and slowness is a more accurate perspective than ours. So first of all, it's really different. Verse eight, he says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. He gets like Dwight Schrute, fact. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Fact, to God, long stretches of time are like this. He quotes from Psalm 90. Psalm 90 begins like this. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations before mountains were brought forth or ever you'd formed the earth and the world from, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, eternal in both directions, future and past. You return man to dust. You say, return, children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, uh, or as a watch in the night. The psalm keeps going and says, if you live to 70 or 80 years old or more, even that is like a sigh, just like a breath. If you live to 80, that's going to feel like a long time, but a thousand years is 12 and a half lifetimes for someone who's an 80-year-old. And he says, for God, it's just like a night that's, that's passed, a watch that's just come and gone. It's one of these verses that is supposed to blow our minds with God's bigness. The same way, a couple of weeks ago, a NASA article, maybe you read it, Hubble Telescope findings recently are leading astronomers to change their estimate of how many distant galaxies are out there as we're able to see further and further and further out into space. This blew my mind. It said that the average or the, the estimate has been 100 to 200 billion galaxies and that recently they're beginning to think there might be 10 times that number, 2 trillion or more. And I laughed when I read this article because I thought 200 billion and 2 trillion are equally inconceivable to my brain. Like, who cares? I mean, once you get to that number, it's like, well, what's the difference, right? But 10 times that many, it's just, I can't. And, and the Bible tells us that God created all of that with a word. And he upholds it by a word of his power, all the power contained in trillions of, not just planets, trillions of galaxies, the source of all that power is the one true and eternal God who metaphorically speaking or anthropomorphically speaking holds it all in the palm of his hand. And in the same way that that is just mind-blowing, um, eons of time are like this to God. Tom Schreiner is a, a New Testament scholar and wrote a great commentary on 2 Peter. And I love this sentence. He said, what seems agonizingly long to us is a whisker of time to him. Just a whis whisker of time. It's a great picture. And Peter says, don't overlook this fact. From God's perspective, what you feel is agonizingly long is like this. But here's our problem. It doesn't feel like a whisker to us, does it? doesn't feel like it to us. So we can know this and be reminded of it, but it still feels long to us as we groan in various ways and, and look forward to it. Two things I, I want to say to encourage you in this. Number one is that Jesus is uh, sympathetic to your experience of time. So even though God sits sort of looking at all of time and to him a thousand years is as a day, the fact that Jesus became a man 
Because of the incarnation, when Jesus was conceived of Mary and born as a baby and grew up, he can experience, he's experienced and is able to sympathize from our vantage point of what slowness feels like. I was thinking about kids in the room. If you're a kid, sometimes you can feel like adulthood will never get here. That just seems as far away as possible. I remember being a kid and thinking, I will never get my driver's license. That's just forever away. Jesus was a kid. Bible even has a sentence to remind us that Jesus grew up in wisdom and in stature. He grew up in size. At one point he was this tall and then he was whatever, this, this tall, however tall he got. Jesus understood what it means as a kid to wait. He understood what it means as, a, as, a, as an adult to wait. He was thinking about Lot in our passage a few weeks back in 2 Peter 2. He talked about Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember? He talked about day after day, he was surrounded by a city that was wicked, so openly immoral and wicked that day by day it was tormenting his soul as he waited for God to do something. How much more Jesus, the sinless son of God, come in flesh now with eyeballs and hands surrounded by the brokenness of the world and the effects of the fall and sin and death. I wonder how many funerals Jesus went to. I imagine behind Jesus' tears when he was at Lazarus' tomb, even though he was about to raise him from the dead to show that he is the resurrection and the life, he wept. And I have no doubt that, that some of that, those tears are coming from Jesus' experience of how long how long is death going to keep doing this? How long are people's lives going to be shattered by the loss and the separation of death? And Jesus wept over that because he's experiencing our perspective of wait. Even though simultaneously Jesus is the eternal son and he understands that a thousand years are like a day, but he sympathizes with us. So as we pray, how long? Be encouraged that the Savior, uh, who, uh, for, because of whom your prayers are heard by God and cared about by God, sympathizes with the weight. Jesus understands how long the whisker feels for us. Second encouragement to me, as, as we wait from our perspective, is that one day, the Bible says, we will be in a vantage point where we will also have God's perspective on time, which is amazing to think about as well. That there will come a day where we will also be able to say, God's right, a thousand years is just like a day. In eternity, with resurrection bodies forever with the Lord, we will feel that. We will say, Paul was right when he said, all that was slight momentary affliction compared to this eternal weight of glory that we're in. We'll see it that way. Let me think of the last verse of Amazing Grace. Let's sing it here for a second. We've sung, you maybe have sung this many, many, many times since you were a kid. Let's sing this. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That is equally inconceivable to us right now. We sing that in faith, right? I imagine that's going to be true, that there will 10,000 years have gone by and we feel like there's no 
there's, there's just as many days ahead of me as there are behind me. And one day we will sing that, uh, not by faith, but with sight, which is amazing. So be encouraged. God is eternal. He's not slow. He's not late. He's not dragging his feet with this promised coming of Jesus. There's reasons for his delay that are perfect, that we can trust as we're going to see here and actually even be grateful for. So first of all, God is eternal. Second thing Peter wants us to remember, encourages us as we wait, is that God is patient. End of verse 9 basically says, every day that Jesus doesn't come back is a day of massive mercy, an opportunity for millions to have their eternal future changed. He says in verse 9, the Lord's not slow. He's patient toward you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's preference isn't perishing for people who have sinned. The word perish sometimes just means die in the Bible, physically die, but he doesn't mean that here because he implies that if you reach repentance, you will not perish. So what he means by perish is to fall under the just judgment of God and for him to separate himself from you forever. He means perish like Jesus meant perish when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. So perishing, the way Peter means it here, is the antithesis of, of, of uh, uh, eternal life. It's eternal separation from God, being cut off from God. It's to fall under his wrath. And you might not just assume, oh, of course, God's angry. And of course, perishing is a reasonable option on the table. You might think, well, why is God so angry that perishing is even on the table? I want to briefly sum up why the Bible says that this is just of God and why he's angry. One of the clearest places in the Bible that says why God's wrath will be shown toward people is this in Romans 1. Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is, what is ungodliness and unrighteousness according to God's terms. He says, well, it's this. It's like men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, like last week, deliberately overlook what has been shown to them. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they're without excuse and so then here's where wrath comes in. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the picture is this, that God is the creator. He's a loving and good creator. He didn't need us. He wasn't lonely. He created us so that we might be blessed to know him, see him, and enjoy him forever, and by doing so, bring glory to him. That's why he made us. And every one of us since Adam and Eve has turned in rebellion against this God, doubted his character, assumed we knew better, found all sorts of things in the world that he made more delightful and more worth orienting my life around the pursuit of than the maker. That's what it means to not honor him or give thanks to him as creator. 
And the fact that he made us means he's in charge and he can tell us what to do. And every one of us from the heart is inclined to not want to be told what to do by other people, but especially by God. And every one of us has sinned. And ungodliness sometimes looks like high-handed rejection of God and blatant breaking of all his commands and looking for the biggest ones and breaking them and shaking fists. But often ungodliness looks really nice. Ungodliness can just look like treating God as irrelevant for your joy and being perfectly happy with things he's made to be your God. Effectively, you don't bow down and worship those things like this, but you do by making your whole life pursuit to have and keep those things and to have as much of it as you can. And Paul says that it's because of this that the wrath of God is revealed. It will be revealed against ungodliness. That's why perishing is on the table. That God will say, if you don't want me in this place, eventually he will say, okay. But praise God that he's merciful and slow to anger. And his preference is that we would not choose perishing over enjoying him forever. And so God in his mercy has created a situation in which God can display his justice and not be an unjust God who just turns a blind eye to sin and like a a nice old, you know, soft grandfather, grandmother that just says, okay, and overlooks anything. And that God can uphold his justice. Meanwhile, he can show that he is amazingly gracious. And the solution is the cross. God becomes the substitute for us and he comes and bears the consequence. He, before sending judgment and wrath, he comes to bear his own judgment and wrath upon himself and his son. The righteous one, Jesus for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. That's the gospel. And because Jesus has done this, he offers us freely an opportunity to be reconciled to God and have peace with God be forgiven by God, like we, we sang there, that my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, is nailed to the cross, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And here's the terms. It's not pay him back, accept it up front and then pay him back. It's acknowledge, I can never pay that back. And in humility, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and say, please, forgive my sin because of what you did on the cross. And Peter's saying here, the reason Jesus has not come back yet today and why we're all sitting in here is because God wants you to reach repentance if you have not. God's preference is that you would turn from your sin and you would turn to him and receive the forgiveness that Jesus bought. This is God's heart and we need to ask ourselves, Grace Fullerton, is this our heart? I have to ask, is this my heart? Is my heart that I wish people not to perish, but to reach repentance and know God forever? Read an article a couple of weeks ago by a pastor who asked two questions that just stung. And they were this, do we believe people are perishing forever without the gospel and do we love them? He said the first question is a theological one. The second one's a moral one and a spiritual one. Are we thinking rightly about heaven and hell and the gospel and faith? And then do we have compassion in our hearts for people who can either benefit from that forever or miss that forever? 
It stings because I'm really aware of how frequently in my life, functionally, I live like I'm a universalist. I, I, I can live and interact with people as if I just assume that in the end, everyone's gonna be with God. It doesn't matter what we do. There's no sense of urgency that practically speaking, when, when, I, when I just buzz through my day and I blow past people and I, and I can act as if I'm a universalist, even though I don't believe that here and the Bible doesn't teach that. Confession. A week ago Friday, it was two days before I was going to be preaching at La Mirada, and I had set the whole day aside to, for sermon prep to finish. In the morning, I needed a haircut first, so I stopped at the barber that I've been going to lately, and the same guy cuts my hair, and we've had a couple of conversations in the last six months. He knows I'm a pastor here in Fullerton. He, uh, he, he knows, we've talked about the Bible a couple of times, has come up, um, but I sit down in the chair, or actually, I sit, sit down waiting, about 30 minutes waiting, and the conversation in the room between all these barbers and all the guys getting their haircut made it clear, probably some guys in here don't know Jesus. Um, just a guess. And so I get up in the chair and he starts cutting my hair and he says, so, you know, are you off today or what do you got going on the rest of the day? And I'm thinking, uh, well, I said, actually, I'm preaching at my church on Sunday. Uh, so I, I got to go finish preparing for that. He goes, really, what are you preaching on? <laughs> Looking at this and, and I go, well, um, I'm preaching from second Peter and, and it's about the, the fact that Jesus is going to come back again. And he's behind me. This is a dude barbershop. They don't put a mirror in front of you. You just trust the guy until it's over. And he, so I can't see him behind me. He's just cutting my hair. And well, I say, it's about when Jesus, is, I believe Jesus is coming back again. And it's just silent behind me. He didn't give me anything else. Like, really? Or what? Or, no, like, let's keep talking about this. It was just silence. And I sat there, I sweat for about a minute in my mind. Deciding, am I gonna continue this conversation, even though maybe he's hoping this is just going to pass by, or am I going to take the off-ramp? I took the off-ramp. I get my car, and I drive here to this office, and I'm thinking about this verse. The Lord is patient, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Thinking, what is that about? Why, why does that urgency not grip my heart such that whatever awkwardness about maybe keeping that conversation going or having to speak up loudly enough for him to hear it behind me that probably he's not the only one who's, why would that be so, so overwhelming to me in a moment like that that I just take the off ramp and, and just avoid that? It's shameful. I got here, I just prayed, Lord, give me a sense of urgency and a compassion for people that would lead me to, to, to not take the off-ramp, to see every moment, every day as opportunity because Jesus hasn't come back yet. Pray that we would be a church like that, be people like that. You know who's, who's a person like that who's been an example to me? In that Mark Hobson, he's been here before um, to, to share a little bit about what he does. He's in Shelley, his wife, were members of Grace for many years, uh, but he used to work for an organization called California Schools Project. The same organization, but now it's called National Schools Project, and that's their vision statement in three words, reach every student. They want every student in the public school systems in our country eventually to have been reached with the gospel, to have been, been encountered Jesus through the scriptures and been invited to respond. And he just recently got named the president of NSA the National Schools Project now. He was back here a couple of weeks ago. Susan Sanders took that picture. But that right there, I just was struck, reach every student. I know Mark well enough to know in his day-to-day -day life, that's not just a platitude for a photo op for him. But that is really, it's a driving vision for his day-to-day -day life that I, I, I want 
to be increasingly so in my heart and, and, and in our hearts. You know, so, you know, erase the last word. And I don't know what it is. Reach every neighbor, right? Reach every coworker. Um, reach every, you know, old high school friend that you've reconnected with on Facebook or whatever. Reach every child in your family that you're raising. Reach every, that this would be our heart because it's God's heart. He doesn't wish people to perish. He wishes people to reach repentance, Peter says. And so this is to actually give us a good reason to pray, wait, Lord Jesus. Yes, come, Lord Jesus, but also wait, Lord Jesus. I was thinking about the Hermans who we support, who are in Chad and just beginning to work with a nomadic people group uh, in the deserts of Chad, and they've just begun to have one or two relationships where Jeremy sits down and opens the Bible with a man and begins to just just begin. And I can imagine uh, many days them not praying, come, Lord Jesus, but hold on, Lord Jesus. Pray that would be our heart. So God's eternal God's patient. Last thing in verse 10 here he hits is that God is just. That God is just. And, and, and Peter assumes that that ought to comfort us as we want justice to be done. He basically says, God will not in the end let even the smallest act of evil slip through the cracks and go unpunished. Nothing will be overlooked. God won't miss anything. Justice will be thorough and sudden and expected. Those are the two things. He says, sudden, it'll come like, a, like the day of the Lord, uh, or the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's an analogy Jesus used and then Paul used. It's gonna come when you least expect it. If you think a thief's coming over, you're gonna lock the doors and get an alarm system or something, but being caught as if being caught by a thief means you were just going about business as usual, not expecting anything bad to happen. And when the day of Jesus returns, if you are in your unbelief, it will come like a thief and it will be bad, Peter says. You know, I was thinking about Jesus' first coming as we think about Jesus' second coming. And do you remember when Jesus came first, he said, here's why I've come this time. John three seventeen. God didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why he came the first time, to bring judgment. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So we have to get this. This helps me think about the second coming and judgment coming with more understanding of God's character and his grace. Jesus came the first time not to condemn, but to become the recipient of God's justice, to put himself on the receiving end of God's wrath at the cross, the lamb who was slain. That's how he came the first time. But Peter is saying the second time, the lamb will come and administer God's justice. When Jesus returns again, it's not gonna be um, gentle and sweet. He's coming as judge. And it'll be sudden and it will be thorough, which is what I think these last three phrases are all boiling down to. For the sake of time, I wanna say this. These last three phrases, depending on if you're looking at a New American Standard Bible or an NIV Bible or ESV, might have a couple of different English words in there that, that, that have slightly different interpretations of exactly what these events are that are gonna happen. Um, But if you have questions about that, come talk to me because for the sake of these 10 minutes, I actually wanna get to why Peter says this. But here's the brief picture. He says, ESV, then the heavens will pass away with a roar. It could mean the spiritual realm. I think it means all that space up there that things are floating around in like galaxies. It's all the sky, the physical stuff that we look up from the earth. All that will pass away 
or like the song we sang, will be rolled back like a scroll, which comes from Isaiah and Revelation imagery. Second phrase, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Or it might say elements in your Bible. I think it means the elements with which all that is filled. The heavenly bodies, I think, is right. In other words, all that will be burned up. And then the last phrase brings it down to earth and what's going to happen as Jesus returns. And it says, the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. Maybe your Bible says will be burned up. I think it's more likely the translation is will be exposed or will be found or made manifest. It might mean burned up, but if it does, the picture is if you would burn an entire field so that then anything that's remaining would be exposed. I think that's the picture is everything is moved away. I think it's very similar to what Jesus describes to John in his vision in Revelation 6. In Revelation, it's describing all the final events sort of like a scroll with seals on it. And one by one, the seals are being broken. And when the last one finally breaks, it will all be complete. And it gets to this sixth seal in John's vision. And, it, and this is the seal that describes when Jesus is gonna return. And listen to some similarities to what Peter's talking about here. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. And behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So cataclysmic, sounds like, sky, and the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. So I th- the image, I think, is purging and purifying, clearing away everything. And look what happens next in this vision. Once all this has been removed, well then... The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, not powerful, just powerful, but slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The picture is nowhere to hide in that image. Peter Davids, who writes a commentary on 2 Peter, says the picture is indeed of stripping off everything that stands between the eye of God and the earth so that all those things human beings thought they were getting away with or thought God did not see are suddenly exposed to his unblinking eye. It's a picture of thoroughness, I think. And when Jesus returns, he will judge and he won't miss a thing. And it's the justice of the lamb. I want to ask you a question. When, when you think of that last phrase, expo- the, the works done on earth are all exposed. Who here loves the things that they've done to be exposed? <laughs> all the things you've done to be exposed. Just imagine all the works that you've done in your life. If they were just suddenly exposed to the person sitting next to you in here. All of it. Is that, is that a happy thought? or to your wife, or your husband, or to your kids. All the works that you've done exposed to, to, to the people in this room. It's a terrifying thought. Peter's saying, all of the works done on this earth, including yours, will be exposed before the Lamb when he comes to judge. But here's the crazy thing. Not the crazy thing, the true thing. It is crazy. It's already all exposed to God. You can act like he doesn't see it and put that out of your mind or put him out of the picture and, and reconcile it that way. He doesn't exist. But either, either way, it's already exposed before God. He already sees it all. And here's the option. 
you can run to the lamb right now and hide yourself in him. That's what it means to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus. We hide in him. He says, come here, I've paid for it all. You're covered. Because if you don't hide yourself in the lamb in that way, Peter's saying on that day, there will be nowhere to hide from the lamb. He will judge. But it doesn't have to be that way. Even this morning, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews, I think three times it says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You can harden your heart a little bit in the next 10 minutes it takes for us to finish this service and you get to your car. Right now, I wanna ask you, in your heart, do you know your own works that you've done? That you know that if those were exposed, stand exposed before God, you don't have a leg to stand on. And do you understand his great love and mercy in the cross and what he offers you that you can do simply by praying and asking him to forgive you in Jesus' name? Don't harden your heart to that and say, maybe I'll I'll keep considering that. Do that now. Come talk to me right now after the service about this. If you do, or if you want to. So finally, for us who believe and are looking forward to this day, be encouraged that God's justice will be done one day. And the fact that we've seen evidence in the past, like Scott talked about last week in in the record of scripture and the historical evidence of scripture that God has at times shown his justice by judging in small doses to give us a very clear picture of how just he is and that he will judge so that we might know if he says it, he will do it. So be encouraged by that. And secondly, be encouraged because God's patient. And let's treat our days every day as an opportunity to be part of God's redemptive work in this world and to wake up and say, Jesus hasn't come back today. One reason for that is there are people who still have not repented that God wants to repent. And be encouraged by the perspective, right? It's not slow. He's not late. Jesus will come back at the right time. I want us to take a minute and pray before we, we sing and close our service. Bow, I'm gonna give you a minute to pray quietly in your own heart with the Lord about any of the things we've been talking about that, that, that you need to talk to God about. And then in a minute, I wanna ask a couple of you specifically to pray about this matter, about us as a people at Grace Fullerton, having God's heart um, for people who are perishing, that we would have compassion. So pray silently, and then I'll invite a couple of you to pray about that item.